John 11, verse 1. Our friend Lazarus. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. And it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. The sisters therefore sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard it, he said, The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When therefore he heard that he was sick, he stayed then two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, But I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples therefore said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. Then Jesus therefore said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Thomas, therefore, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary still sat in the house. Martha, therefore, said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother shall rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, that is, he who comes into the world. And when she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she arose quickly and was coming to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. The Jews then, who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? 
they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And so the Jews were saying, Behold, how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of him who was blind have kept this man also from dying? Jesus, therefore, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so they removed the stone, and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me, and I knew that you hear me always because of the people standing here, but because of the people standing around, I said that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. He who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many, therefore, of the Jews who had come to Mary and beheld what he had done, believed in him, but some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would teach us from this passage what it means for us to be experiencing afflictions for the glory of God. We pray, Lord, that we will learn, that we will believe that you do love us no matter what comes our way. And ultimately, whether in this life, but certainly in the life to come, you will deliver us from this present evil age and we shall experience glory with you forever. Show us, Lord, that we must have faith. We must believe that you love us just as your word teaches. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. John chapter 11 is one of the final incidents in the life of Christ as recorded in the book of John before his final week, before his final week of life in his incarnation. This is the last. And it is a fitting one for John the Apostle to record for us here in John 11 because it has to do with resurrection, which they were about to experience. Jesus was about to be arrested. He was about to be tried. He was about to be crucified. And three days later, rise from the dead. Something that they had never seen, never experienced before in their whole life. A glorified, immortal, resurrected body of Christ. They never experienced that. Well, this is a foretaste of it. The resurrection of Lazarus. Not the glorified resurrection, but a temporary resurrection. And some would rather say rest resuscitation of Lazarus, whatever we might call it, we know it's not the glorified resurrection of Christ. He was the first one. Well, that resurrection of Lazarus happens here as a foretaste, as a forerunner for what the disciples were about to see happen in their own Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Lazarus. And also, Lazarus is an example. The resurrection of Lazarus is an example that no matter what we see before our eyes, no matter what 
circumstances or afflictions we see before our very eyes. Whether it is Mary and Martha uh, mourning over the death of their brother, or whether it is the disciples mourning the death of Christ, or whether it is us mourning and experiencing hardships in life until we see Christ face to face, whatever it might be, we must maintain faith, persevering, enduring faith from beginning to end. From the time of our conversion till the time of our coffin or the time of the coming of Christ, the second coming, we ought to endure in faith with the assurance that God loves us. He certainly loves us and he certainly has our good in mind. His purpose is to demonstrate his love toward us and for his own glory. Remember, God He redeems the elect for his glory and he punishes the reprobate for his glory. We are here for his glory, whether we are redeemed or reprobate, whether we are righteous or wicked, whether we are believers or unbelievers, we are here primarily, centrally for God's glory, not for his love. Though his love is good and beneficial to us, we who are his elect and redeemed for our eternal salvation and our current life, that he will protect us and provide for us now. His love is certainly special to us, but his love isn't the main reason he created the world. It is the glory of God, which this incident highlights also. Just like it did in chapter 9, the blind man healed. It was for the glory of God, even Lazarus, His death and his resurrection is for the glory of God and in the same way, our life. Whatever afflictions we experience as believers are for our good and for the glory of God. Let's explain the passage or review the passage in verses 1 to 16 and then we will highlight some lessons for us. Verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. This village, Bethany, is just two miles away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place of authority, the capital of the city, and the place where the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and others, they assemble, they have their meetings, and some live there, some live elsewhere, but it's just a couple of miles away, about two miles away, as it says in verse 18, 11, 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And even some people consider it part of Jerusalem or just right there at the boundary or border of Jerusalem and the next city or village, Bethany. That's where these three live. This is because, this is important because the Pharisees end up going to the house of Mary to console her. Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they go to that house and they're nearby. That's why they have proximity to this family and they have proximity to this miracle that Jesus will perform. It's also close to Jerusalem where Jesus will be crucified. And all the people would have heard of what happened in Bethany and they would have heard about what happened in Jerusalem. For example, what happened in Bethany? Chapter 12, 
verses 9 to 11. Chapter 12, John 12, 9. The great multitude, therefore, of the Jews learned that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests took counsel that they might put Lazarus to death also. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. They hated Lazarus so much that they were willing to kill him too. Because too many people on the basis of this miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead were also believing in Jesus because he's the one that raised Lazarus up from the dead. Another matter we have in reference to Lazarus, Mary, and Martha in verse 1 has to do with a heresy that has been in existence for 2,000 years. It, it, it first appeared among the Gnostics or Docetics of the early centuries after the Apostles. The Gnostics or the Docetics, these People claimed to be Christians, but they weren't Christians. What they did was they mixed some Christian teaching, words and theology and practice, some of it with paganism. They mixed it with paganism and idolatry, false religion. They mixed and matched however they pleased. And among them, some of them taught that Jesus actually was married to Mary and Martha. He had wives and he had children from these wives. Jesus did. And also, that exists today. Because among the Mormons, they believe that Jesus had more than one wife, such as Mary and Martha, and he had children from them. Yes, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who the Bible says was never married, teaches he was never married, the Mormons say he was married and had children from them. That's blasphemy. That is blasphemy. And also, among homosexuals, homosexuals who distort and pervert the Bible, being perverted themselves, they pervert the Bible, and they find that Jesus and John the Apostle were homosexuals. Jesus and Lazarus. Jesus and Peter um, John, Peter, James, and John, or David and Jonathan, Naomi and Ruth, and go on and on, they find examples, spurious, specious examples in the Bible to prove that homosexuality or sodomy is valid biblically. But no, all of these things are perversions. These are among people who don't have enough humility and self-control to carefully and accurately read and understand the Holy Word of God. It's a characteristic of heretics, false teachers, apostates. It's a characteristic of them. They refuse to do that. To have enough composure and even respect and adoration for God and His Word to control their wicked mind and wicked mouth. They don't have it. So they concoct and contrive false doctrines that lead people to hell. Verse 2. 
It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. We have this incident of Mary anointing the Lord Jesus, wiping his feet with her hair. Now, this, properly speaking, is John 12, 1 to 8. John 12, 1 to 8, we find, such as verse 3, John 12, verse 3, where Mary is said to have done so. John 12, verse 3, Mary, therefore, took a pound of very costly, genuine spikenard ointment and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the ointment. This is recounted or described in John 12, 1 to 8. And in verse 3, it says, wiped his feet with her hair. That phrase, wiped his feet with her hair, is also in John 11, verse 2. Well, another incident that most likely it happened earlier in the ministry of Christ is recorded in Luke 7. In Luke 7, a similar incident is recorded, but it's likely that that's not what John means here. John, the apostle in John 11, is describing John 12, not Luke chapter 7. Although Luke 7 likely occurred earlier in the ministry of Christ. A couple of things to note about Luke 7. One, it was early in the ministry of Christ. Number two, the woman there is unnamed. Unnamed. Number three, it happened in the house of Simon. It happened in the house of Simon, but in John 12, it says that Mary, Martha, Lazarus are there. In Bethany... In Bethany, so it's in their home, not in the home of Simon the Pharisee. And also, fourthly, John 11 and 12 say Mary by name, by name, but Luke 7 doesn't mention the woman at all. And then lastly, this phrase, wiped his feet with her hair, is identical in John 11, 2 and John 12, 3. But that exact phrase is not there in Luke 7. There is a similar phrase in Luke 7, but not the identical phrase in Luke 7. So for those reasons, we think that this incident in John 11, where he's referring to something that has not yet happened, well, that is known as uh, expressing something proleptically or presenting something in anticipation. That is, you say something, but you assume that your hearers or readers know what is about to come because they have read the whole book or they know something about history or both and they know what you're talking about. This is likely what John the Apostle is doing. He is in anticipation saying what he says in verse 2, because of chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. And actually, this is done by many people, historians, commentators, theologians, 
they write like this. They write, and it's known in literature as proleptic writing. Proleptic. In anticipation of something that people already know about, you say something briefly about it earlier. And this is necessary to explain, to avoid the charge of contradiction and confusion at the very least. Verse 3. The sisters therefore sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. They report this to Christ by messengers, likely, because it says the sisters sent to him, sent by messengers, because they have not yet come to him. They will, one by one, Martha will, and then Mary will come to him later. They send messengers, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And they were so concerned about this sickness that they saw it as a fatal sickness. It was a fatal sickness. That's what they mean by it. They know how bad the sickness is. And they describe it. They appeal to Christ, He whom you love. He whom you love. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. This love of Christ is evident here in this chapter. Even see in verse 11. John 11, verse 11. Our friend Lazarus. Our friend Lazarus. And therefore, it's clear that Jesus does love Lazarus and his sisters. There is a loving and endearing relationship that they share, similar to Jesus and John the Apostle, in that it says the beloved disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that there was a loving relationship. So one should not doubt whatsoever what's happening here. The fact that Jesus delayed Coming to see Lazarus and his sisters does not mean he does not love them. This is what people mistake. Since in their own mind and in their own experience, God delays when they want the assistance of God, when they want the help of God, people think because God has delayed, He does not love me. We shouldn't think that way, though. Just like here. John assures us that Jesus did love Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. So we should also have this confidence that he loves us in spite of our hardships. Verse 6. When therefore he heard that he was sick, he stayed then two days longer in the place where he was. He stays two days longer. Why? To ensure that four days would have elapsed and that Lazarus would have had a stench so that the stench, as we read later in the chapter, they tell him that there's a stench. There will certainly be a stench because he's been dead four days. They're meaning that the body, the human body, the dead human body, stinks after it has died and it stinks so bad you can't smell it, you can't tolerate it. 
That's what happens to dead people. It even happens to dead animals. You can't stand to be near it because of the smell. So this is the problem, right? That experience later, that's when he was told, Lord, there will be a stench for he has been dead for days. So Jesus did it on purpose though. He could have come before Lazarus died. He could have come the moment he died. He could have come the same day that he died. He could have come the next day, but he waited four days to make sure that Lazarus did have a stench. And then when he does have a stench, and all the people know it, it's a fact of life, a stench after four days or by the fourth day. It's a fact of life that it would happen to everyone. Everybody knows it, whether they are Jewish people or Gentiles. It doesn't matter whether you're a Roman, a Greek, a Jew, an Egyptian, an American. It doesn't matter who you are. There will be a stench by the fourth day, certainly by the fourth day. But just because there is an insurmountable problem, insurmountable problem right there in front of you, doesn't mean God can't overcome it. Verse 7. Then, after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? 7 and 8. Jesus, he knows what he's doing, and in the right time, he says, let us go to Judea again. See, Jesus was not there, near there. He wasn't in Judea. So, let us go to Judea again. Well, what happened earlier in Judea when he was there? The disciples remind him, the Jews were just now, just recently, they were seeking to stone you. Well, what was the recent incident? Chapter 10, verse 31. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. This wasn't the first time in chapter 10, verse 31, that they were seeking to kill him or stone him. But the most recent one, the one that they referred to just now, is in chapter 10, verse 31. And are you going there again? Did we not leave there because they wanted to seize you and put you to death? Why would you go there again now? Why would you think that it was safe enough so soon to return? Of course, Jesus knows being God in human flesh and also being full of the Spirit and also the Father being with Him, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they know what would or what could happen at this point and that it was safe to go. So he says he wants to go. The disciples don't know it, but Jesus knows it, that it's safe to go. They just know it is dangerous. You could die. Verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. He speaks here by a picture, by an illustration of night and day. 
12 hours in a day. That's the average. Of course, he's not being precise. He's not being scientific by saying, no, no, in the winter, it's short. There's less daylight. In the summer, it's longer. And in midpoint, between the, uh, the summer and the winter, it's more on average. No, he's not talking in those terms. He's just talking as people normally talk, and he's using an illustration. That's all he means. 12 hours in a day. Yes, there are 12 hours in the daytime, right? 12 hours in the daytime, 12 hours in the nighttime. That's why we say 24 hours. 24, 12 and 12. So what do we do in the daytime? Normally, most people. We're not talking, we're not talking about overnight workers. We're not talking about security guards. We're not talking about soldiers. We're not talking about anybody like that. We're talking about just normal life. In the daytime, what do we do? We work because we have the light. But when the night comes, we don't usually work. We sleep at night. Work in the daytime, sleep at night. But if Jesus, the light of the world, is here and working, shouldn't we do what he wants to do? Shouldn't we follow his lead, his leadership? Shouldn't we do his will? When we have opportunity, do his will. And don't be like the nighttime people. Let's say those who don't live in the city where there are lots of city lights, but those who live in the country where there aren't very many lights. And if you don't have your car headlights, and you don't have a flashlight, you don't have a phone light, it's very dark. Is it not? It's very dark. And if you walk about in darkness, it's not going to be good. You're going to stumble. You're going to fall. You might get into a trap. You might run across a wild animal. You don't know what's going to happen in the night. So it's better to be with the light of the world, Jesus Christ, and do His will while you have opportunity to do His will. Verse 11. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples therefore said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. Then Jesus therefore said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe but let us go to him. Thomas, therefore, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. A couple of things here in this portion. From verse 11, 11 to 14, 11 to 14, Jesus uses this figure of speech. He uses this illustration. He says, Lazarus, our friend, has fallen asleep. Fallen asleep. Jesus meant that he has died, but death for Lazarus is temporary. Death for Lazarus is temporary. The disciples don't yet know, and Mary and Martha do not yet know how temporary that death is. They don't know that. Jesus meant it that way. He knew that Lazarus had literally died. 
But he used an illustration, a figure of speech, a way to picture it that they would understand. Fallen asleep. Because when people fall asleep, whether they take a nap or they sleep overnight, they wake up in the morning, right? So it's temporary. That's why he said fallen asleep. In reference to Lazarus. However, biblically speaking, they should have known that the Bible sometimes does speak of our actual death, literal death, as sleep. Whenever people die, the Bible sometimes speaks of that death as sleep. People fall asleep, such as Acts 7, verse 60, Stephen fell asleep when they stoned him to death, it says. But obviously he died, but Luke tells us in Acts 7, 60, that Stephen had fallen asleep. The problem with the disciples is they did not consider that in the Bible, that the Bible speaks this way, and also that Jesus was prone to using illustrations to make a connection between literal sleep or literal death and spiritual sleep and spiritual death. Right? They were not thinking that way, but we should think that way. Jesus speaks that way throughout, but the apostles sometimes speak that way. The prophets sometimes speak that way. God does that in order to illustrate, to illustrate to his people. And not all times do his people understand what he's saying because they're not paying attention. They're not listening carefully. Then Jesus told them directly, plainly, verse 14, Lazarus is dead. He is dead. However, he wants to use it. And he tells them that he plans to use it. Verse 15, And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. He's glad for the sake of the disciples that he wasn't there. Why? Because he wants them to believe. He wants them to believe. He wants them to believe in the power of Christ to raise up Lazarus from the dead. He wants them to believe in that. He wants them to have stronger faith, assurance of faith. He wants them to grow in faith. They have heard and seen Jesus do many things. But this kind, with a close friend, they have yet to see. Yes, he has raised others from the dead, but they were not well-known people, close friends. They were strangers in the other incidents. This one has to do with someone that they all know. Remember, it's our friend Lazarus. Our friend Lazarus that he will raise up from the dead. And he's glad for their sake so that they might increase in faith, they might see the glory of God, and they might trust in the gracious power of God in their own life for their own sake. Verse 16, Thomas, therefore, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. 
Thomas, he sees that if they go, there is the danger of death. And if the Jews, the Pharisees, arrest Christ, they grab hold of Christ, they might also grab a hold of his disciples and seek to put all of them to death so that the preaching of the gospel stops with them, killing all 12 of them. Actually, 12, because Judas will not be a part of that death experience. It would be the 11 plus Christ himself. Thomas says so. Now, who is this Thomas? Thomas is also called here Didymus. He has these two names in the Bible. Didymus means the twin. Likely that if he's the twin, he probably is called that because he might have been the younger of the twin brothers or twins, whoever they were, sister, brother, or two brothers. He was the second one, likely for that reason. He is one of the disciples. We know this as we gather it from Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10, Matthew 10, 1 to 4. Matthew 10, verse 1. And having summoned his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Verse 3. Thomas, one of the 12 disciples or 12 apostles. Here he appears for the first time in the book of John, but not the last time. John 14, verse 5. John 14, verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? We do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? That's when Jesus declared his famous answer. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That statement was made in answer to the question that Thomas asked him. How do we know the way? We do not know where you are going. Jesus answered Thomas in that famous passage. Also, John chapter 20, a third reference to Thomas. John chapter 20, verse 26. After Jesus rose from the dead, John 20, 26. 20, 26 to 29. And after eight days again, his disciples were inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and be not unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they 
who did not see and yet believed. In verse 24, when Jesus appeared in that incident, Thomas did not happen to be there. But in 26 to 29, Thomas was there. And when Thomas saw him, he exclaimed, my Lord and my God, in faith. This was not a sinful declaration. It was a faithful declaration. My Lord and my God, because of verse 29, because you have seen me, have you believed? So he did believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But we may have an indication with all of these references from 11, 14, and chapter 20, chapter 20, 20, 24 to 29, that Thomas was one of those that it took more time for him to be convinced of things. He was more skeptical of things, and it took him more time. Though, one by one, he overcame. One by one, he overcame and had full faith. He grew in faith. But in chapter 11, verse 16, even if he meant it in the entirely pessimistic way, he's still saying, let's go. He's still saying, let's go. He didn't say, no, let's not go, but let's flee and go somewhere around the Sea of Galilee and just go fishing or something. He didn't say that. He said, let's go. Even if he meant it in the entirely pessimistic way, let's go and die with him. All right, now... Let's review a few of the points that we can make here from this passage. In verse, in verse 3, we saw in verses 3, 5, 11, 3, 5, and 11, and also verse 36. Behold, how he loved him. Even the Jews knew this. They saw it. Jesus loved Lazarus. Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He loved them. We must be convinced that Jesus loves us, that God loves us. We must be convinced. How else will we have a hopeful faith unless we believe in a loving Father? We believe in a gracious Father. We believe in a loving Savior. Our faith will not proceed. It will not grow unless we are convinced that He truly does love us. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We have to have this kind of faith the faith that believes that God indeed does love us. What else does the cross mean? What else does it mean that he sent Jesus into the world to die for us? What else would that be if it's not love for God to demonstrate it in that particular way? John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting 
life. Romans 5, Romans 5, 1 to 5. Romans 5, 1 to 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit assures us of the love of God. And through what kind of afflictions? Romans 8. Romans 8. If God loved Christ, won't he love us who belong to Christ? Romans 8, 31 to 39. How much does God love us? Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If God did it for his only son, he will do it to his adopted sons. He will do it because we belong to him. We are in the same family. But what about the meantime? We saw in Romans 8, many things happen. What is it that God is doing when these things happen? In John 11, John 11, verse 6, John eleven six. it said, When therefore he heard that he was sick, he stayed then two days longer in the place where he was. Jesus stayed longer for what reason? To intensify the affliction so that the deliverance from the affliction would have more glory. Correct? In other words, Christ puts us through trials. He puts us through tests so that when we are delivered from those 
tests, those afflictions, those trials, then the glory is that much better. What happens on the other end is that much better. John has explained Jesus' propensity to testing us. John 6, verse 6. John 6, verse 6. When Jesus was about to feed the 5,000, before he did it, he tested his disciples. He tested them. John 6, 6. We'll start at verse 5. Jesus, therefore, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a great multitude was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread that these may eat? Is Jesus saying this in anxiety? Is he worried? Is he biting his nails? Is he wondering, what are we going to do? I need your help, Philip. Maybe Philip was more well off than the others. Verse 6, And this he was saying to test him. It says it right there. John the Apostle clearly says to test him. For he himself knew what he was intending to do. He knew it. So when he delays or when he asks questions, when he doesn't answer immediately, it doesn't mean he doesn't know what he's doing or what's going on. John 18. John 18. John 18. When Jesus was in the garden and when Judas had already gone secretly to get paid and also to lead the crowd, the mob, to Christ in the garden, you remember what happened? Judas led them and then Judas kissed him, right? Okay. Did Jesus know what was going to happen? Did he know what was about to happen? Of course. But look at John 18, 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? Jesus asked the mob, Whom do you seek? Did he know? Certainly he knew. John just told us he knew. Verse 4. And we already know from previous verses, even in the book of John, that Jesus knows exactly what's about to happen. Yet he said... Whom do you seek? Why? Because he's drawing it out. He's testing them. He's testing the mob in this case. He's testing them to see what they will say and what they will do. So what does this teach us? When we do have afflictions, these are tests for us. These are tests for the righteous. He puts us through these tests in order that we might come forth purified. In order that we might come forth better than we were before we had the hardship. 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 6 and 7. 1 Peter 1, 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now... For a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He tests us 
by fiery afflictions, by fiery ordeals. But we must trust Him. Trust that He loves us and trust that He will take care of us no matter what happens. Now verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10. John eleven nine. 9. When Jesus used this analogy of daytime, nighttime, it's not the first time that He used this analogy, nor the last. And He used it to say, when we have an opportunity, we better be ready. When we have an opportunity for the gospel, we must be ready. We cannot be derelict in duty. John 4.34. John 4.34. We can actually begin at 4.31. 4.31-34. The disciples here, as usual, they don't understand exactly the first time. John 4.31. In the meanwhile, the disciples were requesting Him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Remember, they went away into the city to buy food. It was lunchtime, and they needed to eat. 32. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples therefore were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Then he illustrates by reaping and um, sowing and reaping in 35 to 38. My food is to do the will of him who has sent me and to accomplish his work. John 9, 4 to 5. John 9, 4 to 5. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. We must work while it's daytime and do the will of God. John 12, 35. John 12, 35 to 36. John 12, 35 to 36. Jesus therefore said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, that darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light in order that you may become sons of light. Romans 13. Romans 13. 11 to 14. Romans 13. 11 to 14. And this do, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. The night is almost gone, and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days 
are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This is what God instructs. That's Ephesians 5, 15 to 17. Ephesians 5, 15 to 17. We must be children of light, behaving as we should in the daytime, doing the deeds of light, the good deeds of God, while He gives us opportunity. Then, we read in 15 and 16 about believing. In 11.15 it says, so that you may believe. And remember in verse 16, Thomas says, let us also go that we may die with him. He is, Thomas at this point does not understand everything and he doesn't believe everything correctly. Thomas does not. But didn't the disciples, including Thomas, already believe? Why then does Christ say, so that you may believe? Didn't we read that Thomas in Matthew 10 was already uh, an apostle, already a disciple, and someone who already did believe in Christ, and he went around preaching the gospel in Matthew 10, earlier in the ministry? Thomas and the others did that, right? We learn here that we grow in faith. Nobody understands everything at the time of his conversion. Nobody. Nobody. And he doesn't understand the next day. He doesn't understand the next year. He doesn't understand 10 years down the road. He does not understand everything 100% correctly and perfectly and have full faith in that until the day he dies. Because if we did, then we would be perfect. And no one is perfect in this life. We strive for perfection, Matthew 5, 48, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We must reject sin and lack of faith, certainly. But no one has it perfectly now. But we do see many examples in Scripture of us growing in faith. That is the key, to grow in faith, even to the point of saying, I am willing to die for Christ, even if someone threatens to put us to death for the name of Christ. Within John, the book of John, let's see examples of John illustrating Growth in faith. Growth in faith. John chapter 2. John 2. John 2, 11. John 2, 11. You know by the second chapter, the disciples have already been called. They have already said, we know that you are the Messiah. You, we know you are the Christ. We're, we are your followers. We already know that. They already know that. From chapter 1. But notice, after Jesus performs his first miracle, it says the following, 2.11. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Which means they had greater belief. 2.22. 2.22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, And they believed the scripture 
and the word which Jesus had spoken. John chapter 11. John chapter 11, verse 40. John eleven forty. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Well, earlier, Martha had already said she believes in him. She said that in verse 27. Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, that is, he who comes into the world. She already believed that. But her faith was strengthened at this incident of raising her brother up from the grave. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. Another occasion to believe. John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verse 8. John chapter 20, verse 8. Then entered in, therefore, the other disciple also, who had first come to the tomb, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So he believed. His faith was strengthened when he saw the empty tomb. He believed the scripture and the resurrection of Christ. This doctrine is what Paul meant in Romans 1.17 when he said, Romans 1.17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. From faith to faith. From faith means from lesser faith to greater faith. From faith to faith. From lesser faith to greater faith. 2 Corinthians 3.18, 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. We are being transformed from glory to glory from lesser glory to greater glory until finally full glory when we are glorified on the day of resurrection, when we are glorified then from glory to glory, lesser glory to greater glory. And you remember the the father whose son was demon-possessed, Mark 9, 24. When Jesus asked him about faith, he said, Lord, I believe Help my unbelief. He knew he did not have perfect faith. He believed to some extent, but he needed to believe more. And he wanted to believe more. Let's do the same. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Let God be found true, though every man a liar. Amen.